This week's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by LaCie. As one of the leading media storage companies in the entertainment industry, LaCie has consistently brought innovative ideas to the market. By now, everyone knows the iconic orange rubber bumper that wraps the LaCie rugged drive. But did you know that LaCie has a rugged SSD? With the ability to transfer 4K raw video with speeds up to 4 megabytes per second, hardware encryption, and a truly rugged design that will take most anything you can throw at it, including dropping it in water or running it over with a two-ton car, the rugged SSD is a dream piece of equipment for any content creator who is on the move. For listeners of the Art of the Cut podcast, LaCie is offering 10% off the rugged SSD or any other LaCie drive when you shop on filmtools.com with coupon code LACIEPOD. That's L-A-C-I-E-P-O-D at checkout to receive 10% off your LaCie purchase on filmtools.com. So next time you need a new drive, head over to filmtools.com and use code LACIEPOD at checkout to get 10% off your LaCie purchase. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Holfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Pete Boudreau. I last spoke with Pete when he cut Gore Verbinski's A Cure for Wellness. His other credits as editor include The Gambler, All is Lost, and Margin Call, among others. He also edited on the TV series Maniac and The Affair. Today, we're discussing his movie, Queen and Slim. What was the schedule like? Um, it, it's funny. I was actually just looking at call sheets to try to remind myself because um, it happened um, It happened pretty quickly. We went to um, – I, I did a pilot with Molina uh, last summer. Uh, uh, I think we started shooting in August. did a pilot for FX, and that's where I met Molina. And we worked on, on that pilot until – uh, basically until she left to start prep. She left to go to, to, to start prep in November. I think I stayed on and finished that pilot around Thanksgiving last year. But I knew when I had finished that project that I was going to do the film with her. My agents had essentially said, hey, you know, you should do this pilot, but the pilot's just a pilot. But what you really want to do is get on this feature. <laughs> so, oh, interesting. So I sort of had that in my mind that the feature was sort of like the bigger um, prize. And I liked the pilot too, and I really liked the people that we did it with. But yeah, it was really to, um, to, to get to know Melina and get to know how she worked and how she liked to work. At that point, I hadn't read the script. I had just been told what the script was about. And then towards the end of working on the pilot, we had a very awkward formal meeting where I was given the script and then she came to the editing room where we work every day. And we were like, okay, so like, let's have a meeting about this movie. Because she was meeting with other editors, too. And I loved the script. I thought it was really great. I thought it was really illuminating and, and really humanizing. I, I, I thought um, as, a, as a white person who doesn't have to deal with the sort of the terror of being pulled over, what that, what that can morph into and how that can completely end your life for no reason. I thought this is a really important story because it's a story that's more important for certain white audiences to get than it is even for African-American audiences to get. Because I think that African-American audiences see themselves in the story. I would like a white audience to see this movie and think twice about what people are going through. I was really moved by it. I thought it was just, I was great. And I'm a big fan of Daniels. And so I knew that he was 
Yeah, I think we had seen Widows recently, and so I was like, I knew Daniel from Get Out, and and uh, and I knew Lena's work a little bit from uh, from some of her shows. And at that point, I knew that I really liked Melina, so I was really psyched. I thought it was going to be a great job. And at the time, I was living in Brooklyn with my family. We, um, we, I guess I got home from L.A. around Thanksgiving. We packed up our house, packed up all our stuff, and moved to L.A. in the middle of January. And then, uh, and I think the production started a week later. The first week of production was in Cleveland, and I think I was looking at the call sheet that looks like it was a 37-day shoot. Pretty decent shoot for a modest budget movie. And then there were a couple of days, I think like three days, of second unit stuff. Mostly car driving, car shots, some drone photography. A lot of that stuff was missing during production. And actually the first week's production in Cleveland was during a polar vortex. And so the first week's dailies I, I didn't get until they got to New Orleans. It was essentially too cold to like <laughs> to get the footage out of Cleveland. They had gotten one batch of footage out. It wasn't enough complete material to cut a single scene. It was just, you know, sort of drips and drabs of like different things. And then I think they were just suffering so badly shooting at night in the polar vortex that like the priority of getting the film on a plane to get back to Burbank to process, they were just not worried about it. <laughs> so it was on production's eighth day that I got the first like dailies that I could actually do something with. Yeah. And it was challenging because what they had shot was the scene with the police officer. That was the bulk of what they had shot in Cleveland. I think they shot it They shot it over the course of one long night. And then there were a, a few pickup things that they had done that week. And because of the schedule, because of the way that the schedule was structured and because of the cars that they had access to and how long they were going to hold the cars for, they basically needed to know by Friday morning if they missed anything, if they needed anything picked up. So I basically cut that police altercation scene on that Thursday and um, handed it off to Melina. Melina was really happy with what she had and then picked out a few things that she wanted to pick up. But I was eight days behind on the shoot the whole time they were shooting. And, and, you know, they shot a lot of material and they shot a lot of sort of complicated sequences. And it was very difficult to catch up. I would sort of be able to power through a handful of scenes and be like, okay, I'm like making some progress now. I'm like <laughs> checking off some of these scenes. I hate the feeling during an assembly of falling far behind. The further behind I get, the harder it is for me to keep on top of the dailies that are actually coming in. So I start getting calls from set. Hey, is there a focus problem here? Do you have enough material for this scene? Do you have this or that? I'm like, oh, I'm doing stuff from last Monday. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm still trying to like clear out the backlog. That, I think, is just always really challenging. It's the most challenging part of the assembly is just staying on top enough. When you're that far behind, do you try to do um, something where you're, you know, you edit differently or you approach the material differently so you can get through it faster? Like looking at the dailies differently? I try to, but I find that it's not helpful to the process, which is just the process that's ingrained in how I've been cutting for at least the last 10 years. And I just find it's, I just have to work faster. And that's kind of how I make up the time. I, I just try to, I'll use the, the alarm on my phone and set like 90 minute goals 
during the edit day. I'll be like, all right, at this point in the day, I have to have finished these scenes, done rough sound to this and you know, picked music for this. It keeps me focused and it keeps me on track. I do an internal schedule for the day just so I stay on track. I actually made up pretty much all the time. There were two scenes that were really difficult to put together. The dancing scene in the juke joint and the protest sex scene. Those were really challenging to put together. Both of those scenes were scenes that, you know, I'd spend three days on the dancing scene and then I'd just put it on the side and I would just pick up like, all right, well, I can blast through like four dialogue scenes and make up some time. And then I would go back to it and see stuff a little bit differently. You'd have to distance from it, you know, scan through the dailies a different way and, you know, you can find a spot, some new material. And I had to do that with both of those scenes. I think I went back to both of those scenes like two or three times each during the course of the assembly. I had pretty much caught up to where they were, had maybe a day of dailies that were coming in that I needed to cut. And then the the second unit car footage stuff started coming in and it was tons, it was tons and tons and tons of stuff. So that (laughs) totally just like blew out my schedule. I thought I was in really good shape. And right at the end, I had um, hours of car footage. You mentioned that during the polar vortex, they didn't want to ship the film out or couldn't ship the film out. Was it film? It was. It was. They shot 35. Melina was, was really adamant about shooting film. I honestly don't know how I feel about shooting film. Did you think film. that shooting film kept the quantity of dailies and coverage down or were you just getting uh, a ton of stuff despite the fact that it wasn't digital? I was still getting a good amount. I was definitely getting a good amount of stuff. All of the car driving second unit stuff, I think, was done at the end of the shoot digitally because it's um, it's just so time consuming to stop, change a camera, you know, get a, put a different camera body on, reload a mag, like while you're trying to do drone photography or, or car rig stuff. It's super time consuming. My memory of it is a lot of that stuff at the end was shot digitally. I was not pleased that I was getting so far behind because we were shooting film. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that was not making me happy. Right, because um, otherwise you would have been getting stuff through pics or something every night, maybe. But yeah, instead you I, had to wait for a shipment, do development, scanning. It's three days from the day that you shoot it is, is when you can expect to get it back. I would always prefer to have the, have the time during the assembly to get the film into the best shape it can be. You don't have a second opportunity to show the film to the director for the first time. It can be crushing. <laughs> it can be crushing for the editor and the, dire- and the director to screen an assembly that's like half-baked. It can be like, like a hard to recover from even in terms of like the trust that you need to like actually finish the film. My preference is always going to be get me the dailies as soon as possible. That's a really interesting point that the delay can cause a trust issue because I can totally see that because you have to work so quickly and you're trying to being able to deliver, um, you know, so she knows what she needs to cover. Then your first assembly is not maybe where you want it to be and it doesn't make you look good. Part of the mystery of the assembly is seeing what is important to the director through the footage that's coming in. And as more footage comes in, the spotlight is like getting larger in terms of what you're tuned into spotting and what you're and what's important what becomes important for you in terms of how you're selecting shots how you're even like structuring um, individual scenes and then the transitions between them one of the things i really liked about working with melina on the pilot was that i could tell that our tastes were really similar our senses of pacing were really similar 
our taste and performance were really similar. So I, I had confidence when the dailies were coming in that I was at least putting it together in a way that she had envisioned it, or at least it wouldn't have been so far off the mark of what she had wanted. I always think that there's some amount of your own personality that you put into an assembly that's, that the director isn't looking for, isn't expecting. And, you know, it's just, it's part of the creative process. It's, you're bringing, you have to bring something to it. Otherwise you're just, um, you know, like you could just be cutting together a storyboard. I want to have that time while I'm going through the footage to make sure I'm sort of picking up on all those clues. The music and some of the places where you didn't use music, there were quite a number of scenes that played beautifully without music, places you might expect music to be, and there was great sound design underneath of them, just whatever kind of room noises. And Talk to me a little bit about choosing music and when to not put music in. Melina would prefer the assembly to have no music in it or as little music as possible. There were, I think I maybe chose two or three pieces of music for the assembly because I think scenes, you know, montage scenes or, or sort of big stirring sections don't necessarily stand on their own. Shooting it and cutting it only sort of gets you so far. Clearly, the first temp piece of music I used during the assembly was for Slim having his head shaved and Queen's braids being taken out. The sort of cross-cutting of those two scenes. Slim standing and looking at himself in the mirror. I'd taken a cue from um, If Beale Street Could Talk. They were getting closer to each other at that point in the film. They were being transformed. Even though it wasn't, the ice wasn't breaking with them together, it was like this sort of dual emotion that they were going through independently and so I just thought it needed a super strong piece of music that was basically going to push you into that next scene the next scene is like a really tender scene where Slim talks about his doubts and if they're going to make it and Queen opens up to him about uh, her mother being killed by her uncle so that was a place I used music I'd done some temp music for the sex scene and the, and the protest and I'd done temp music for the end of the film when they get to the runway and then in terms of like how we started building in music during the director's cut. You know, Melina's got this incredible music background of, you know, the work that she's that she does for music videos. And she has really good taste and she listens to just a ton of music. She was basically pulling in the source music and, you know, just trying a bunch of stuff. She'd play stuff on her laptop and we would just, you know, hit the space bar and just see how stuff was feeling. A lot of stuff came in through Melina. Our music supervisor was Kier Lehman. He gave us a, a bunch of good stuff and also just gave us stuff that got us talking and gave us ideas to bounce more stuff off of. At, at some point, uh, Melina showed the film to Solange Knowles and Solange gave us a bunch of ideas, really, really cool source music ideas. Um, some of those I think are actually in the movie. We were working with, with this guy named Fam who does music supervising for all of um, Donald Glover's shows and he gave us a bunch of great stuff. That really cool New Orleans bounce song, that's playing when they get to Uncle Earl's for the first time. And Fam, I think, came to us through Motown because Motown was, was doing the was going to release the soundtrack. So we had like a lot, you know, we had a pretty deep music team <laughs> for all the source for all the source stuff. I had not worked on anything before where there were there were artists coming to the cutting room to screen scenes or to screen the whole movie and then they would go away and then a week later we'd get a song and the song is like for a scene. And then we'd cut that, you know, we'd like try that song in that scene and maybe it didn't work in that scene but maybe it belongs someplace else and 
Uh, Melina is a huge fan of stems. She's never met a stem that she didn't like. So they'd record all this great music. They'd send it to us. Melina would say, send us the stems. We'd take the stems. We'd like recut the music. We spent a lot of time on the music. It was a big part of the process. And then in terms of the, the score, we just had like this really simple score that I had put together. And it was a couple of cues from Widows from the Stephen Queen movie. We'd actually used a couple of cues from Johnny Greenwood's score for You Were Never Really Here, which is a movie that I saw and I, and I, I didn't particularly enjoy it, but it stuck with me. There was something about that movie that really stuck with me. And when I was like racking my brain to try to find like interesting music, I listened to that score and I was like, oh wow, this like score is incredible. Like there's just a bunch of incredible stuff in it. So we used that for some of the more hopeful scenes when it felt like they could be getting away. There were a couple of cues from that score we used. And we had uh, some tension, some sort of tension-y bed stuff that we had built out of a bunch of different things, like some stuff I'd, I'd taken from Arrival. I think I took some stuff from Sicario, some stuff from the from the TV show Ozark. Ozark's got a great great score that you can easily build other music pieces out of because it's really sparse, yeah. and a lot of it is percussive and it's it's percussive and it's got strings and you know you can kind of um, build you can build like a much fuller piece of music out of that. We were really kind of light on the score. We didn't really go that heavy on it. That was my um, impression that it was a lot of diegetic or source music. Yeah. And one of those and the, cuts that they, speaking of the source music, you mentioned going to the, the first time they show up at her uncle's house. There's a great transition. I would love to hear you talk about, even though it might, might be very simple, but you go from source music to, where you're hearing it to, to there's a transition where it's score and then it kind of transitions to being diegetic. Yeah, that we played with a, a bunch of times in a, in a bunch of different scenes. We sort of fake it in the avid just by doing um, just by doing reverbs and then bringing out the reverb, starting dry and then adding some reverb to it. Our sound mixers and our sound designers were really good. Our sound, our sound mixers were um, were Frankie and JT. They have incredible ears, and they're really smart about backgrounds. And you know, it's funny. Like we had a, a quick, what well, was a quick mix at Universal at the Hitchcock Theater, and it felt like we were just like kind of barely making it through the mix. We had so many, you know, there were so many ideas that we were trying, and and also just a lot of cleanup. It's hard to get good sound when you're in cars and you're. A lot of process trailer stuff. Process trailers squeak and rattle and make all kinds of noise. And, yeah, you know, like there, it, it can be hard even just from like a even with a a week of pre dubs and 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 a week of cleanup. Like once once you start getting the score in and all these other elements start coming together, things unravel and you got to put it back together quickly. But when 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 we went to the premiere at the at the Chinese theater in L.A., I'd never been to the Chinese theater before. Um, premiere was like a, a week and a half ago, maybe two weeks ago, and uh, and it, God, it sounded so good. We talked about how much to transition music, how much of it to be source, how much of it to be score. They did a really good job of, of making making all of those like source and, and score cues really seamless. We were happy with our temp score, and we had been very specific about where we placed those cues so that when it came time for for music spotting our composer was was dev hines he's like a rock star he's not like a he's not a composer like it's not how he usually works but he's um just incredibly talented and uh really smart and we had like uh we had like a map basically of all the cues and our music editor is joseph debezi 
I sat with, with Joseph and we made a cue list that was basically like where we were using the music, where it came from, like where the temp was from, and then what the temp was doing. What I liked most about our temp was that it was, it was like fairly neutral music. There were only a few places where it was really commenting on what was happening. There was something about that that gave the film a little more realism. Mm. We weren't trying to, to milk every moment with the music. In some ways, we were using it to distance the audience. In some ways, we're using it to um, almost distract the audience so that they're not quite aware of what's happening. One of the things that I think is, is most successful about the movie is that it sort of plays on like a mythological level. It's like a mythic journey. It has like a, a dreamy quality to it. I remember at the first sort of public screening we did, we did a, a friends and family screening about six weeks into the director's cut just to get feedback and just to see if we felt like we were in the right, getting in the right place. Often you can just feel the room you can sort of, you don't need to ask a bunch of questions about whether things are dragging or whether anyone's lost. You can just kind of, you get it from, from just sitting in a crowd. And at the end of that screening, it was like really disorienting. People felt like a little disoriented. <laughs> and I sort of initially was like, oh, I, 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 maybe it's not, maybe it's not working right. And I think that, but I think the disorientation is like, it's a lot of archetypes working together. It's based in reality, but in some ways it's really fantastical. And it's, I think it's just far more rewarding than we thought it was going to be. It really packs a punch. Yeah, it was not what I was expecting when I sat down and I loved what I saw. It was almost like a tone poem. Like there's obviously this very strong thread of this escape from the original inciting incident of killing the police officer that everybody's seen in the trailer to, you know, getting away. But beyond that, it's really character and feeling and emotion that it was not what I was expecting to see. And I loved it. I loved it. Before we get away from the music, I wanted to ask this one thing. You mentioned that cool dance scene. There's a cool audio and music transition from dancing to this monologue that happens after the dance. How that had been sort of scripted and, and cut in the assembly was they have the full dance at the club. They get back in the car and they're driving away and then they have this dialogue where Queen talks about what she's looking for in a man and Slim talks about what he's looking for in a woman. The scene had like a sort of beginning, middle and end. It started with some kind of cute banter uh, in the car and then it got a little more serious and then, I don't know, there's something about it that just like, it wasn't quite right, it wasn't quite working. Like those lines are really resonant for people, the lines of, of what Queen says. I, I want someone to, you know, kiss the scars I never knew I had and nurse the wounds they leave behind. And, like, that is not easy dialogue to sort of deliver. Mm -hmm. It's definitely not easy dialogue to deliver when you're, when, when you're sitting in a car and you're sort of, like, looking out the window and then and Slim's driving and he's, like, sort of, you know, like, every once in a while looking over to check in and see what, you know what I mean? It's just, like, it's not, it's not magic. And so, um, and so, you know, that dance scene was working really beautifully. And Melina was like, well, can we just pull that dialogue up and then transition directly into the car for, for Slim's, you know, half of the, of the scene. The music transition was everything. If you could hand off from the band in the club to a piece of score in a way that felt sort of transformative or magical, it sort of paved the way. You could have her talk about anything. You could really set the stage for something really beautiful. And that was a place where I think the score there was um, was Widows, what I had used in the temp. But it worked great, and it, it became this really moving moment. And it became something that we went back to and we used later when they were walking with Junior. 
we retake their voices and take the dialogue of the scene and then just get some some distance from it. Partly it makes it feel like it's a bigger story when you're layering dialogue like that. It was really tricky too because we wanted to use Queen's lines from the car um, and they had car noise all over them. We ADR'd it a couple of different times and tried to get the performance back to where we had in production and it just never worked. So there is some car noise under that and it, it, it drove JT crazy, drove our, our sound mixer crazy. <laughs> so for, for those who haven't seen the film or maybe don't, don't remember that, that moment, it's exactly yeah. what I thought. It's, I mean, and I hate to say this because I'm an editor. So, you know, when yeah. you watch things, you're like, I bet those are two separate scenes and they decided they were going to pull the dialogue up into that dance scene. It was so good. It, I love that transition in that moment, but I figured that they were two separate scenes that you had yeah. pulled up like that. And then the other one that you just mentioned is the scene where they're talking about being immortal. And so they're out yeah. for a walk with the kid and, um, the, it's not quite done the same way as the queen and slim, but the lines are not synced. Why are they not synced? For me, it, it, it made the lines land better when we could see faces and be very specific about who we are seeing on, on each line. They were losing light. It was shot as a walk and talk. Those images that we have that we end up incorporating into that dialogue were all shot at the end of that sequence and at the end of that day. And they were just kind of grabbed, like the shots of, of Queen and Slim sitting on the riverbank and Junior looking at them. All that stuff was just like the light was really nice and they were losing light. They were just grabbing a bunch of stuff. And I think it was going to be like use two of those shots as a transition and then you're, you're back to them at the garage trying to see if the car works. We didn't have a lot of screenings you know, prior to picture locking, but there was a real feeling that what Junior does at the protest was really out of character for the way Junior was set up, and also sort of out of out of left field for the movie. There was a feeling that Junior hadn't really been set up well enough. But what Junior does at the protest is just so shocking. And I just thought if we could get those lines to land in the same way that Jody's lines landed in the juke joint when they were talking about what they wanted in a partner, I think we can get a little bit more meaning out of Junior by showing him being so enamored of them and laying in some of that very heavy dialogue about what it means to be immortal and what it means to live forever by becoming infamous. And by not um, having him say those lines on, you know, in sync dialogue as that walk and talk, it definitely gave it a very different weight yeah. than it would if you saw him speak those lines on camera. Yeah, and it allowed us to sort of tease out those moments a little bit longer and give them some support. I think Junior takes the wrong lesson from them. You mentioned the the protest with Junior. Did you shoot the consequence of that action, or was that never shot? We did not. Yeah. There was a bit of Junior getting tackled that we had taken out. It sort of contributes to this weird, dreamy, out-of-place, out-of-time feeling when you're left on Junior's face and Junior realizes like that he's made a huge mistake but that it's too late. We thought that that was far more powerful of a way to, to, to land on. And then there's a line of dialogue uh, when they get to the shepherd's house that people seem to lose. Flea, Mr. Shepherd, basically says that young man was killed. And it leads to the dialogue of his wife saying, um, did you make him do it? Did you put him up to it? And so I, I think it's enough to know what's happened to him. Well, it also uh, makes, I think it makes that scene much more powerful that the audience doesn't, I mean, you can kind of guess what would have happened, but right. the audience doesn't know what happens to Junior either. 
yeah. and, until, you know, Flea, you know, make, says that line. And I know just because other people have asked, the sex scene and the protest, they were intercut from the script. Normally I ask about intercuts, how different is the intercut from the script, but there couldn't have been much script. You know, yeah. you, you, you just knew that they were going to be intercut, so you cut them. There's a progression on each side. There's a progression to the lovemaking and a progression to the intensity of the protest. And so there were a few places where we could sort of shift back and forth. But I think we settled on, you know, I think the most logical handoff. I think it's a really challenging sequence. I spent a lot of time working on it. Myself and Molina, we talked about, could we split it? Could we take them apart? Do they have to be together? And we decided that we couldn't split them because we don't have any scenes in the film that are not with Queen and Slim. It felt strange to cut it out, to cut the protest out entirely. It felt strange to have the protest start but not have a, a resolution to it. And I think the sex scene on its own, I think it would just be very hard to watch that, the intensity of the sex scene for the amount of time that we have. <laughs> you know, With the intercuts, we were buying ourselves all this leeway to have more time on both sides. Together was super powerful. I couldn't imagine it split. Um, yeah. But those handoffs is the big thing, right? Where do you yeah. hand off from one to the other? I think the footage tells you. The way that I cut that sequence, because I really struggled with it, was I cut as far as I thought made logical sense in one section. And then I would go, well, there, like, there's no more story to tell at, this, at the protest right now. So, I, so, I'm, going, so I'm going to go to the, to the sex scene. And then for the sex scene, I, I didn't want it to get too far too fast. So then I, that gave me the breaks to go back to the protest. The protest has Junior's march and chanting. It has the cops throwing the tear gas and then beating the protesters. Then it has Junior making decision to confront the cop. Then it has the cop dialogue. Those beats are sort of discreet. They're not really meant to be sort of jumbled together. It's just feel. It's just where, you, where you're at in your storytelling. Mostly because you know what's happening on Queen and Slim's side. You're making the, the hard decisions are what's happening in the protest, about how much to show in the protest, how much to accelerate the violence and the protest. And that's informing where you make the cutback decisions. Can you think of specific scenes that played, not silent, because I loved the audio that was in there, but there was yeah. no music. Are there any specific scenes you can think of? And just to say, we just wanted, we didn't want to put music in there. Or was it like, uh, you know, that old cinematographer's things, you start with black and then you add, <laughs> you only, you don't yeah. add 12 lights, you add one light and then go, Okay, I need one more light, right? I never envisioned music for the inciting incident with the with the cop. I just never thought it needed it. We went with a very naturalistic soundscape. But you know, I'm, I'm talking. I'm thinking about like conversations between Queen and Slim in just various locations, whether they were on the road or in a field or in a house, where you're just hearing the sound of that location quietly. Yeah, you're not hearing any music which I love. It's the same idea that went into how I chose the temp music, which was that I wanted the temp to be really neutral. So it's the continuation of that idea. The dialogue scene between Queen and Slim after her braids are taken out and his head is shaved and they're in the bed at Uncle Earl's, there's one sort of swell of music at the end of that scene. That scene, it just didn't need it. It played so much nicer in the silences. 
you know, I always thought of it in terms of like charting where they were, even just in getting to know each other. Like forget about their romance or anything, but even just like getting to know each other and start to speak to each other as people. And that was a place where I think music just puts all of this emotion into a scene that just, in that scene in particular, because they're the very tentative first steps at getting to to know each other and to like each other. I just thought the scene just played so great without it. Those scenes also always, to me, seemed like they had, and it's just you know me overanalyzing what I'm watching, but they had great yeah. like room presence. Like you felt the house around them. Yeah. As, although they were just laying in bed, it could have been dead silent. You're you felt audio wise the rest of that house. Did you have something to strip under there or did you just leave that to the same guys? Yeah. In the offline, in the cut, while we were working on that, we had some sort of difficult audio there. There were a bunch of EQs on because there was a bad hum from uh, the room upstairs. And so we had done distant crickets. They were in New Orleans and we were trying to get some of that in there. We did backgrounds. We did you know, the beginning of that scene starts with the argument between Earl and and uh, Naomi. They, they get into that, that horrible shouting match and he knocks her out and then she goes after him. He has that meltdown tantrum <laughs> in the hallway. And so, you know, we played the audio of that confrontation for a long time under their scene and then put in the sound of her stomping off and the door slamming. And then because that's happening and neither of them want to be in that room and they, they're both so uncomfortable. They're like lying in this bed. They don't know each other. Their appearances were just totally transformed. When that door slam happens and all you hear are like the crickets and like an occasional car by outside, you're just kind of like relieved for the silence. All of that yelling and shouting and fighting, I think, paves the way for you to have like a quiet moment. But it was always really important to feel like they were in real places and that, and that it, the world was real. So we're very, very conscious of what the locations should sound like. I felt this really strongly on, on Gore's movie, on, on Gore Verbinski's movie that I did with him, where you're really just like killing yourself on your temp sound mix to just make it sound like a real world and like a living world. You're doing like tons of EQing and verbs and pulling in sound effects from all these different places. You're cutting five different music scores together to make one single piece of music. You know what I mean? Like it has to be presentable to anyone that watches the movie and they feel like they're watching a movie. And then it gets sent off to the sound team and they have so little time. They don't actually have the time to like listen to the work you've done, listen to your tracks, listen to like <laughs> where you put your sounds and like the types of sounds you use, the kind of car sounds you use, the door sounds you use, like any of that stuff. And then you show up at tent mix and all of your sounds are different. Everything is like totally different. And how it's, much does um, that affect your sense of the movie when that complete change happens? It, it can be hard because our sound guys, you know, always called it temp love. They're like, oh, you have temp love, you have temp love. And I think that to some extent we did, and to some extent, we knew the movie a thousand times better than anyone else did because we'd been living with it and designing it for months before anyone else had had a chance to see it. It's very hard to say that it's just temp love when you actually just like innately feel like what the scene should be because you've been living with it because you designed it to be a certain way. It's purposeful. Um, yeah. It's purposeful. You yeah. did it purposefully, and so therefore, when it's not there anymore, it's like, wait a minute, I did that on purpose. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's that exact thunderclap at the exact moment 
was for a purpose or whatever it was, a door slam, yeah. the crickets. Yeah, I always try to hand off a really good map. And the map has all the peaks and valleys in it. It has everything that it has like has everything it needs to be, but it should just sound better. That's, a, that's the way I always think of it. Take what I did, just make it better. But don't use the same sounds. Like like use better sounds. Like, I always find that so jarring in a in a temp or on the stage. It's no one's fault. It's the way the schedules are built. Schedules are just built to like to not give sound enough time. They just don't have enough time to like sit, listen to your tracks, even to do spotting. Like we did our spotting session and took notes, gave good notes and all that kind of stuff. But then it's like, all right, here are our files. And the, and the temp is in two weeks. They take your notes and they're like, <laughs> 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 you, know? <laughs> you know, it's like, cause you, you, you know, it's just, it's just how it goes. I think on, on these, on these smaller films, it's very, it's very hard to like, to give, to give all the departments all the time they need. It's tough. But I think that we, we ended up in a great place. Our sound is really strong. And yeah. our score is really, really strong. All of those things were coming in very, very last minute. We would mix a whole reel and then get the music for it like two days later. <laughs> and then we'd go back and remix the reel. Because our composer was on a European tour. He worked for a couple of weeks, then he went on like tour for four weeks, and then rushed back to L.A. and, and tried to finish the score. It was like, it was very down to the wire. It's a huge credit to Melina that it came out how it did, because um, she's really, really exacting. She very much knows what she wants. What I like about working with her is that she lets me help her figure out what she wants. By the time that we were deep into like the discussions with composer and you know music spotting and all that stuff, you know we could say like emotionally this is what's happening. This is who the cue is about. Music is about this character here. At this point, we really had a hard time getting the music right for the last scene on the on the runway because Daniel's character is going through so many different things. You need like a, a bed of tension. You need the hopefulness as they're driving to the airport. You need a bed of tension that comes in when the cops come in. And then you need some sadness when Queen is shot. You need something that makes Daniel pick her up. And like all of those things in our temp, we had like really tracked this sound is doing this and this sound is doing this and this instrument is doing this and you sort of know it so well then when you're working with a composer and you're getting stuff back you're like oh it's just not right like why isn't it right why isn't it right it's only when you go back to like what you had been working on for months that you and you think about what each piece is doing that you're like that's why it's right <laughs> and, then, and then you can sort of get the vocabulary together to be able to explain what you need but Molina is like just a an incredible creative partner to be able to work with because she's she's super open to suggestions once she trusts you she like really trusts you implicitly you know, one of those directors that just kind of brings out the best in your work because they support you so well it's great when you get a relationship like that you feel like oh cool like this is another one i got another one that i can come back to and we can do this again was your collaboration similar on the pilot to the film or did your relationship change or the way she collaborated change because of i don't know whether it's budget or time or schedule or it changed on the film because director on a pilot Still, still doesn't have the ultimate say. The TV is the producer's medium. It's the writer's medium. And so she got the cut where she wanted it to be. She was very happy with the changes that we were making. But at some point, she was happy to sign off on decisions. She was happy to say, I don't love that. But at that point, she's, like, she's just not in the room every day anymore because it's not, it's not her role. On Queen and Slim, it was totally different. In her relationship with Lena, she's got 
a sort of built-in showrunner collaboration, except it's not just Lena saying, no, no, it's my show, and we're done. They have a great working relationship. They're really good collaborators. And they also, they had Final Cut on the movie, which was like incredible. I just thought that was like so incredible that they had, that they had Final Cut. And because Lena is a showrunner, it's, it's basically her job. Because Melina's work experience has been in TV and in music videos, I think she transitioned into features much easier because she had Lena as a collaborator who can fulfill a showrunner role, but also, I think, let Melina like, really run the show. It was cool to see their collaboration. It was, it was cool to see how they worked together. Do you remember the line about state's property? There's some really interesting edits when they're talking about, do you want to be state's property? It's a little bit dissociative was the idea. They're standing at the back of the trunk. They've just locked the sheriff into the trunk. And she says, uh, he could have helped us. And she slams the trunk. It's like sort of an out-of-body experience for him. We're running lines out of sync. We're showing like a very like emotive look on Queen's face and just confusion on Slim's face. We, we did it to be really dissociative. It, it wasn't sort of more than that. It was something that like at all of our public screenings prior to Picture Lock, people were like, oh yeah, I mean, it's great. You just have to fix that stuff. That's, that's when they're talking. It's like, not right. like, you know, but, but Melina was like, I, I love it. She's like, I think it's important. In the sound mix, we had done some very subtle stuff of just, of just filtering and EQing her voice. So it sounds a little verby. It just sounds like it's in his head. That was the idea behind that. It was just to, to try to get into Slim's head a little bit. There's a, another interesting scene I want to ask you about. They pull into a gas station, and there's a long uh, – it's not a POV shot, but it's, it's a shot of the back of the car, or the back of the truck, yeah, as they pull into a gas station. Yeah. And it's quite a long shot of their dialogue played from behind them following the truck into the gas station. Can you talk to me about that decision yeah. and kind of what was the effect you were looking for? Molina – had this feeling that the the car coverage was going to be very samey. It was going to be a lot of shot, reverse shot, a lot of reflections on their faces, a lot of like, you know, you can only be inside the car so many times. She wanted to just be along for the ride. She wanted it to feel like that the audience was just along for the ride. And I think you get that feeling. It's like, it's like you're sort of, you're with them, but you're not really with them. You're sort of watching them. You know, because they're talking about how many views did the did the YouTube video have, and Slim is asking how long they have before the helicopters are following them, and you know, I think it just gives you this feeling of pursuit, this feeling that that they're being chased, and I think it's also just like it's the first time we have daylight in the movie, so I think it's just sort of nice to be with them and not to be uh, sort of funnel, funneled through like a traditional shot reverse shot. So often you don't play dialogue on faces, and I am really interested about that idea of when to play lines on and off. Um, can you think of either specific shots or scenes, or do you have a philosophy about that? I feel like I'm not even so much aware that, that there's a lot of dialogue that's not being played on faces. In certain places, the reaction is just more important than the giver of the information. And I think that because it's a, such a deep character study, there are places where I just want to see someone process information. And so a lot of times, I think that's what it comes down to for me. It's not always the information that's important. It's how, it, it's how a character takes it and, and how they interpret that information. And you just you get that out of a reaction shot in a way that you just you can't get out of um, just you know seeing someone speaking. 
um, particularly for for an actor like Daniel, because his his eyes are are so revealing. He can do very small movements, but you get much more out of what he's feeling just by seeing his face. Uh, I think it just kind of came came naturally out of the way the scenes are structured and the way that um, the way that the information is being delivered. Please don't take this defensively. I'm interested in, sure. in the thought process after the climax of the movie. We spend a bit of bit more time kind of wrapping things up. Did you have discussions of let's do this sooner or maybe we end on the climax or what were were there any structural discussions about the end of the movie? Yeah, there were. We had this very interesting this like very, very interesting reaction from our early screenings and also our preview screening where we had real audiences watch the movie for the first time. The white part of the audience was very, very upset at the runway. The black audience was very angry. <laughs> and that was universal. White people were crying and black people were mad, really, really mad. And so we couldn't end the movie with people being mad. <laughs> we just, like, I, we, we did discuss, like, different ways of, like, handling it. It was scripted that there was going to be a news report at the end. And the news report is where you, where you learn what their actual names are. That informs the mythology of it that you didn't even know who their names were, but you loved them and you like really got to, to care about them and you hoped that they made it and you didn't even know who they were. That I think is really important. I thought it was also good to see Uncle Earl again, even though he's a smaller character. There's just so much tragedy in that family. So I thought it was important to see him. There was some discussion of, but Melina never took this discussion seriously. <laughs> there was some discussion that I was always trying to have with her, which was, to end at the, uh, after the funeral. And I heard an interview with her that the guy that kind of betrays them, that there's a shot of him in that last sequence too. Yeah. Um, he was supposed to be yeah. a white guy. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of, it, it's bringing up a lot of interesting and like really passionate critiques online. I'm reading a lot of stuff that people are upset that Junior kills a black cop. And people are upset that a black guy gives them up. Um, it's it's something that Molina and Lena were really passionate about. You know, there's this idea that once you put on a uniform, it doesn't matter what color you are. You've like gone along with the philosophy of how people are treated. There is also a feeling of do you have a movie where two different African Americans kill two different white cops? Like, is it too much? Is it too is it too on the nose? Is it too much what you would expect to see? And same with the end, with the character that gives them up. It's something that they really thought about and really weighed as many options as they could to try to figure out the right way to do it. And, and what was right for them. The script is a very singular view. It's very much Lena's vision. At Lena and Melina. I don't want to credit Melina with any writing because it's, it's really Lena's script. But they made all those decisions about what race those characters should be. And it's all really intentional. I, I always joke about the ending of the film, and I was—I I always said, um, so, you know, we don't want to go like Lord of the Rings. We don't want to have like three, three or four endings. <laughs> you know, we want to have it end strong and have it end in a really good way. I think the way that the runway worked out was sort of, sort of better than I thought it was going to be. Daniel's performance is so strong there. Mm, yeah, uh, he's really great. Jody's great there too. But after she shot, the way that Daniel, Daniel's face just transforms and 
then the decision to pick her up and walk towards the, the cops, it's really way stronger than it is on a piece of paper when you read the description of like of like what's happening. It's it's transformative what's happened with with the performance there. And so I think that there is a sense of like that scene is so final, but it was never written to be final. It was written as, as a, a step in the progression to get towards the end. The legacy section with the kid, kid wearing the shirt and the, the pasting on the, on the wall, like that was in the script. Watching the newscast was all in the script. We didn't cut a single scene out of the script. Like wow. <laughs> some lines here and there. But we didn't cut. We didn't cut a single scene out of the script. And there were a few that we tried to, and we tried different ways of shortening stuff. And a lot of it stuck, but some of it didn't. And you know, there were a lot of different ways that we tried to change things. But the ending was really the ending that Lena and Molina had envisioned for it. They felt so strongly about it. It was really hard to try to sway them. Yeah, well, no, it sounds like from what you're saying that the audience needed that time. You know, I think so. Yeah. I think so. I think you need some. I think you need some time to process. I think there is something hopeful about their legacy. That ending on the runway or ending at the end of the funeral, there's no hope. And so I think. Uh, I think it. I kind of need all of it. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I, mean, I You know. I sat through the entire I'm, credits, and sometimes you do that because you're in the film industry and you feel like you owe it to the people that made the movie. But I sat through them because yeah. I couldn't get up. I mean, I couldn't. I couldn't leave the theater. Until the credits were finished. Uh, audiences have had really, really strong reactions to it. Daniel said that he was doing like press junket screenings. The press had just screened the movie and he like walks into the room to like start the interview. And he said that there was like no applause. No one was smiling. No one was like clapping. Nobody was happy to see him. And he said most of his screenings with people that have just screened the movie are like the interviews are very hard to start they're, they're hard to, it's hard to start talking about the movie yeah i can see that i can totally see that i'm glad i had a couple of days before i had to talk to you <laughs> yeah no, it casts a really strong spell i i i think there's something really amazing about it yeah it's, it's an a, it's incredibly a, powerful film and it's not what i expected watching the trailer there's more going on than you can than you can capture in the trailer there's far more layers to it Right, exactly. Pete, I've kept you for a very long time. I really appreciate your uh, great insights into the film. Thank you for oh, cutting cool. it, and thanks for talking to me. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Yeah, it's always good to talk to you, man. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Pete Boudreau. I'm Steve Hallfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, give us a like and a share, leave a comment, and make sure to tell a filmmaking friend.